Good morning and welcome to the Institute for Government for, uh, for this event to discuss the House of Lords and the EU withdrawal bill. Um, obviously, the autumn was dominated by the Commons uh, stages of the EU withdrawal bill, uh, tracked very expertly by my colleague Maddie Timmett-Jack in a series of uh, weekly updates. Maddie was a bit frustrated, though, because she kept on waiting for those sort of moments when there was going to be very high drama happening, um, but actually kept on being a bit disappointed that uh, it looked as though the government might be defeated, something exciting would happen, and then it all seemed to evaporate with the exception of the one, one government defeat. Um, we had final stages in the Commons last week, and the House of Lords is about to receive the bill as amended uh, to kick off its considerations. Uh, so we thought this was very timely to invite various distinguished members of the House of Lords and a very distinguished commentator on the House of Lords to look forward to what were the prospects for the bill as it goes into the Lords. Um, so I'm Jill Rutter, I'm Programme Director. I oversee our work on Brexit at the Institute for Government and we are joined today by, on my uh, right, Lord Strathclyde, who was leader of the House of Lords and Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster from 2010 to 2013, uh, been in the House of Lords for quite a decent amount of time, and sort of go-to person, I think, when, uh, when government's having difficulties in the House of Lords for advice. So we're going to hear from him about how he would advise the government to approach the House of Lords to get the bill through with minimum hassle. Uh, then, on my left, we're going to turn to uh, Lord Jay. Uh, Lord Jay was former very distinguished civil servant, permanent secretary at the Foreign Office. Uh, more recently, he is acting chair of the European Union Committee in the House of Lords, and he's going to give us a perspective for the non-government peers in the House of Lords, who, as we all know, currently have quite a significant majority uh, in the House. And then on my far left, Professor Meg Russell, who's Professor of British and Comparative <coughs> Politics at UCL and Director of the Constitution Unit, is going to give a perspective on actually where is this in the sort of wider scene of the uh, State of the House of Lords, its role in legislation, etc. So they're going to kick off with quite brief contributions, and then we're going to open it up for all your questions. Uh, just a reminder to anybody for whom this is relevant, this is being live streamed, it's all on the record, it's being filmed, so don't say anything you might, uh, might regret. Uh, and so without further ado, I'm going to turn first to Lord Strathclyde. Just, you know, how should the government go about getting this bill through? Whatever he anticipates to be a rather sterner test than the Commons ended up presenting. Well, Jill, first of all, thank you very much indeed for in inviting me. And how wonderful it is to speak to an, an audience uh, that's clearly interested and engaged in the uh, Brexit uh, process and regards the second part of the parliamentary process with some relish. Uh, most of the audiences I speak to, as soon as you mention the word Brexit, uh, they immediately start um, saying things like, get on with it, and wasn't it done a long time ago? But you know that getting it through the House of Commons was an achievement but getting it through the House of Lords is going to be something completely different. And uh, while there may not have been uh, drama in the House of Commons, and drama is not a word usually associated with the House of Lords, on this occasion, there really could be high uh, drama. The House of Lords is largely a Europhile house and has been for decades. There are all sorts of uh, reasons uh, for that. And... Uh, it has the powers 
uh, either to throw out the bill uh, in one go, which I think they will not do, uh, or to amend it substantially, and if they really wanted to, to stop the, the, the process, at least the legislative process, of Brexit altogether. Now, I don't think that that is actually what is going to happen. It would be an act of political suicide for the House of Lords. It would be reminiscent of the debates that we had just over 100 years ago, 1910 and 1911, and I'm not convinced that the House of Lords has the thirst for that uh, now. My view is that there is every good reason for the House of Lords not to fundamentally attack uh, this bill, and there are several reasons for that. This is a very unusual bill. It started off, it, it was born out of a referendum where people clearly voted in favour of Brexit. They did so on an extremely high turnover, higher than most recent uh, general elections. It was an expression of the will of the people that the government felt obliged they had to uh, enact. Uh, secondly, uh, Article 50 was passed in the House of Commons with an overwhelming cross-party majority. Thirdly, there was a general election where the party of government had in its uh, manifesto that this would be done. And certainly the debates with the Labour Party during the election was all about honouring the will of the people expressed in the <coughs> referendum. And finally, this bill has had... Uh, unusually perhaps for the House of Commons, an extremely good and detailed debate in the Commons, day by day, line by line, ex exploring all the issues. Now, if the chief purpose of the House of Lords is to debate great issues, to scrutinise and to revise, I am absolutely convinced that they will do that again. But when it comes to defeating uh, the bill, uh, they should not do so. The House of Lords is at its strongest when it's on the same side as the people against a, an elective dictatorship in the House of Commons. On this occasion, that would be completely re reversed. It would be the House of Lords acting against the people and against the expressed will of the House of Commons at the same time. This strikes me as bright red flashing lights of danger. There is a political aspect of this too. The government has no majority in the House of Lords. That is well known and understood. That gives a great power to the House of Lords, particularly to the parties uh, of opposition. The government on this bill can only be defeated because it is encouraged to do so by the Labour Party. And interestingly, not only is there no member of the Labour Party um, uh, here, but it is not clear to me what Labour's strategy is overall on Brexit, nor what will it be in the uh, uh, House of Lords. But there will be a substantial political cost, I maintain, for the Labour Party to encourage the House of Lords to throw out major parts uh, of, this, uh, of this legislation. All parties have, uh, and when I say all parties, we know where the Liberals are, but Conservative and Labour have die-hard Europhiles, and I don't criticise them at all. They have had held their views for a very long time, were deeply shocked by 
what appeared to be 50 years of British public policy turned on its head almost uh, overnight. In another era, we would have called them ditchers. Uh, but these are diehards who cling <coughs> strongly to the view that the United Kingdom should remain part of the EU. There are not enough of them to make a difference to the legislation without the force of the Labour Party uh, behind them, which is why I say that what Labour does is extremely important. Um, we're at the very start of this process. Next week we have the second reading. We'll have a far clearer view as how to how people stand. But if I can just finish with this, this small point, the strength and knowledge and experience in the House of Lords would be far better put to use by the government looking at debating and discussing what the long-term relationship should be with the United Kingdom and the EU over the course of the next 10 years. That would be a very valuable process that I hope my colleagues in the Lords will soon um, in, in, indulge and enjoy themselves in. Thank you very much. I'm going to turn immediately, therefore, to Lord Jay. So, um, frustrating the will of the people? Is that what the, uh, uh, the 199 Labour peers, 184 crossbenchers, 100 Liberal Democrats, and 24 bishops, and 41 other Lords might end up doing? Are you just going to go and go away quietly, or where do you think the big battlegrounds are going to be uh, pitched as the bill comes into the Lords? Well, thank, thank you very much, uh, Jill. I'm delighted to, uh, to be here, and I'm, I'm glad to see a number of those who will be taking an active part in this debate in the Lords sitting around the, uh, the, room, uh, the room today. Um, just a word first, perhaps, on the, on the timing. As Tom said, the, um, the second reading will be uh, on the 30th and 31st. That's next week. I'm glad to say that I should be leading a European Union uh, committee visit to Ireland on, uh, on, that, uh, on those days, so I shan't be one of the 100-plus taking part in the, uh, in the second reading uh, debate. I think that the next stage will be the committee stage in the Lords, which is likely to be between the February, February recess mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and Easter, and then uh, um, report and third reading, the final stages in the Lords, after Easter, and then it will go back to the, uh, uh, the Commons, will be re-examined, and then come back to the Lords uh, again, I guess, and there will be what we call ping-pong, when they try and resolve any outstanding differences between the Lords and the Commons. Sometime, I would think, in, uh, in, 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 in May, with the bill getting agreed by the, uh, by the summer. That would be my guess, but um, uh, guesses in this field are rather uh, uncertain. I think debate in the Lords will be... Uh, detailed, forensic, and at times acrimonious. Um, and I think it'll be quite a test, if I may say so, for the uh, comparatively new Conservative peer, Lord Callanan, who will be, uh, who will be taking the bill through the House of Lords, he and his, uh, he and his, um, his, uh, his colleagues. Um, I doubt... Uh, you asked if I'd say something about the view from the, as it were, the non-Conservative... Benches. I, I doubt if the, um, uh, if, if the bill and discussion of the bill will follow conventional party lines. There are, um, as you were saying, Tom, there are divisions, uh, there are divisions in the Conservative Party, uh, there are uh, uh, divisions in the Labour Party, there are divisions on the cross benches. Um, I'm not quite certain about the uh, Liberal Democrats, but Paul Tyler can no doubt um, 
uh, tell us a little bit about whether there are any divisions in the Liberal Democrat Party later, uh, later on. And in any case, as, uh, as, as Tom said, there are no, there's no Conservative majority uh, in the Lords. Uh, uh, what is clear is that there is a real... Um, there are a number of people in the Lords who are, as we speak, uh, gathering in small groups to work out exactly how they are going to examine forensically different parts of this bill. This is going to be a very, very serious Lords operation to look very closely at every part of the bill as it comes to us. But I do not myself think that the aim is going to be to kill uh, the bill. I think it's going to be, and this is the Lord's, um, uh, its function and its tradition, it's going to be to change and improve it. Now, some peers will hope for and perhaps advocate an attempt to go back on the referendum result. But most, I think, I may be wrong about this and I may be corrected from the floor on this, most, I think, will accept the result but have genuine differences with the government on how withdrawal will take place. And I suspect that is what the main, uh, the main de debates will be uh, about. Uh, I think perhaps I could say here that I think also a, a, a large number of members of the House of Lords will have quite firm views on what the final relationship will be between the uh, UK and the European Union, and the government's view on that is notably absent at the moment. We have no view at all of what the government thinks the final stage uh, of that relationship will, uh, will, will be. So what are the contentious issues likely to be? I think that, first of all, there is an issue of devolution, um, which uh, uh, the, 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 the government has decided not to introduce an amendment in the House of Commons to Clause 11 of the bill, uh, in order to satisfy the concerns, quite strong concerns, by uh, the uh, Scots and the Welsh in particular about the way in which powers brought back to Britain will be divided between um, Westminster and between Cardiff and, uh, and Edinburgh. And I was at a meeting last week of uh, uh, the, the parliamentary committees, the EU committees of the Lords and the Commons, and Edinburgh and, uh, and, and Cardiff, and it's quite clear that that is a very strongly felt view. I think the government will want to resolve that, but it has to be, uh, it has to be resolved. Uh, then there is the, the amendment, the Dominic Grieve Amendment, which uh, will ensure there's a separate and prior vote on the withdrawal um, agreement. Uh, uh, in my view, that will probably not be... Uh, uh, touched by the opposition, if I can put it that way, because that is something which the Commons has decided on, uh, and those who are, have doubts about the bill think that's rather a good amendment. Uh, there, is, there will then, I suspect, be um, uh, moves to remove the clause that says the ECJ will have no jurisdiction after we leave. I think that's not so much for doctrinal reasons, it's because some of the moves which the government has made uh, recently, for example, over citizens' rights, imply or say that there will be a role for the ECJ after we leave. So um, uh, I think there is a, a, a contradiction between what is in the bill and what government policy is, which will have to be, uh, which will have to be uh, examined. I think there will be moves to rem remove the specific date for exit, 29th of March, 
2019, because the inclusion of that date in the bill uh, removes any flexibility that there may be needed at the end of the as the end of the negotiations approach. Uh, David Davis, when he came and gave evidence to the EU committee a little while ago, was. Uh, uh, said to me, you uh, quite true, I used to work to him when he was, uh, when he was <laughs> Minister for Europe, uh, and uh, you will remember he said that there are many occasions when the clock stops, um, uh, when negotiations continue right through the last, uh, the last moment. Well, it's quite difficult to do that if a British bill has got uh, 11 p.m. on the 29th of March 2019 on the face of the bill. So I guess there'll be, there'll be moves to change um, uh, that. I think there'll also be an attempt to make certain that the Charter of Fundamental Rights is not excluded uh, from uh, th those clauses in European legislation which are, um, uh, which are included in, uh, in UK uh, legislation, um, to a number of people quitting the um, Charter of uh, Fundamental Rights uh, looks doctrinaire, and I think that a lot of people believe that the paper which the government produced setting out how every right in the Charter of Fundamental Rights is also reflected in UK legislation was not, uh, was not uh, convincing. And finally, of course, there will be quite a lot of work on the so-called Henry VIII clauses um, on um, uh, refining what can and what can't uh, be amended by secondary legislation after the government has, uh, after the bill has um, has passed, and uh, and that is where um, extremely clever House of Lords lawyers are, as I say, as we speak, uh, examining every um, every every clause to see what can legitimately be regarded as legislation which needs to be uh, which needs to be. Um, uh, amended and that which is so important that it needs to come to the Lords and the Commons itself to be amended. So quite a lot of quite difficult issues which I think the Lords is going to, to look at pretty hard and there will certainly be amendments sent back to the Commons. Okay, thank you very much Lord Jay. So finally Meg, we've had quite a long shopping list from Michael of flashpoints which Quite a lot of them seem exactly the sort of issues a lot of people in the House of Lords revel in making the government's life quite a nightmare. <coughs> We've had Lord Strathclyde's view that actually the Lords should really be focusing elsewhere rather than trying to frustrate the, the will of the people. So, Meg, are we heading for a sort of constitutional meltdown between uh, the government and the Lords, or will we all see this as actually proving the value of the House of Lords as a revising chamber? Meg. Well, thank you. Thank you for the invitation, Jill. And... Um, the invitation spurred me to actually think through this topic and write a blog post, which will be going up on the Constitution Unit blog tomorrow, rather foolishly, perhaps, in these unpredictable times, making ten predictions for what will happen to the uh, bill in the Lords. And there's a short version of that on the uh, academic news website, The Conversation, today. Uh, with only five minutes or so, um, I'll try to cut it down to five predictions now. And I think there's a lot of agreement on the panel, so um, I won't, I'll try not to repeat. Um, my first prediction is... Um, the bill will be substantially amended in the Lords. It's exactly the kind of bill that the Lords are qualified uh, to scrutinise and that they enjoy getting their teeth into. It's highly technical, constitutional, it's full of all these delegated powers. It will be significantly changed. The extent to which it's being changed will probably not be that obvious to many people on the outside because a lot of this will be done through negotiation and agreement with the government. The government has indicated it's listening on some points. It will give concessions to avoid defeat. Um, it may accept some non-government amendments. But at the same time, I think there will 
probably be defeats on the bill, particularly if the government proves intransigent on some issues. My second prediction is that um, for guidance on the issues that the government's going to get, some of the issues the government will get into difficulty on, look to the House of Lords' um, key committees in these areas, the Constitution Committee and the Delegated Powers mm. and Regulatory mm. Reform mm. Committee, both highly respected, both due to report on the bill in the next week or so. Both committees actually issued interim reports on the bill, uh, but the full reports are still awaited. The Constitution Committee um, commented that the multiple ambiguities in the bill are deeply problematic. Um, I think it will, it will be commenting on things like the peculiar legal status of EU retained law under the bill, the exclusion of the Charter of Fundamental mm. Rights and the devolution issue, lots of other things as well. The Delegated Powers Committee um, commented in its interim report that the bill includes wider Henry VIII powers than we have ever seen, some of which it referred to as wholly unacceptable. So I think we can expect critical reports from both of those uh, committees, and peers will take those reports very seriously, and the recommendations are liable to find their way into amendments, which the government will get into trouble on if it doesn't concede. But my third prediction is that the House of Lords, in line with what Tom Strathclyde has said, will not block Brexit. It will not seek to block Brexit. We've seen some rather hysterical headlines in some newspapers to the effect that it will, uh, and we've seen suggestions from Jacob Rees-Mogg that maybe Theresa May should think about creating 200 new peers to prevent the Lords blocking Brexit. I think this is all absolutely <laughs> fanciful stuff. I think the Lords will primarily focus um, on the technical uh, detailed issues, as Lord Jay has referred to. And as Tom Strathclyde said, while the House of Lords certainly contains some noisy opponents of Brexit, you have to think about how the numbers work. There are 800 members in there. It takes a lot to get a majority. A few disgruntled conservative backbenchers or crossbenchers or even the entire Liberal Democrat group is not sufficient to force an amendment through. Essentially, you need Labour. So Labour are the ones to watch, as Tom Strathclyde said. And of course, the House will be very much governed by its conventions of deference to the House of Commons, and I think in this case, deference to the referendum result. For some of the sort of instrumental reasons that Tom Strathclyde has referred to, that um, difficult stuff could come raining down on the House of Lords if it misbehaves, but also because most members in there have a great sense of propriety and of their place in the system. My fourth prediction um, is that Concerns aired in the Commons are another very good place to look uh, for the issues which are uh, likely to cause difficulty in the Lords. Um, there were a lot of points raised in the Commons which were not resolved, some of which the government said it was going to go away and think about, like uh, devolution, others of which didn't really get much of a chance to be looked at, like Dominic Greaves' amendment at report stage about the peculiar status of EU law um, under the bill, which I think the Constitution Committee is going to... Um, report on. Um, you have to remember that if the House of Lords um, defeats the government on the bill, it does then go back to the House of Commons and there's not a great deal of point defeating the government, except maybe occasionally for sort of symbolic reasons. There's not a great deal of point the Lords defeating the government on <coughs> things which the Commons is simply going to reject. So peers will be looking very carefully at the issues that were hot in the Commons and where the government was clearly under pressure, particularly from its own backbenchers, the Lords will be trying to push further on those things. So it's a joint effort. It's not a clash 
uh, between the houses. Having said that, I think my fifth prediction has to be uh, that things remain unpredictable <laughs> um, in these very uncertain times. Um, we're in uncertain political mm. times in general, and we're certainly in uncertain times on Brexit. The negotiations are proceeding in parallel with mm. this bill. Uh, opinions are shifting. Uh, the Labour Party leader is under pressure on his position. Uh, positions may be shifting on the Conservative backbenches. The key thing will be if there's any sign of a shift in public opinion on this, mm perhaps because of what happens uh, in the negotiations, the House of Lords, despite its unenacted nature, will be listening out very carefully for all of that. If there is any indication of change of mood in the country or in the Commons, the House of Lords will be the place um, for those concerns to be reflected in changes to the bill. So I think the House of Lords could provide a forum for this uh, process to get into difficulty. But ultimately, it's not the House of Lords' job to block Brexit. Um, it is the House of Commons' job to block Brexit if it decides to change its mind and the House of Commons' view will prevail. Thank you very much, Meg. Just before we go to questions, I just want to ask Lord Sussbride. Um, you've been leader of the House of Lords. Meg has said that actually the government will be doing a lot of background negotiations, but we've got a relatively inexperienced Dexu Lords Minister. Dexu's had three Lords Ministers and it's very brief brief life. So what sort of areas do you expect the government to be sort of doing those sort of, you know, behind the scenes deals on to, to avoid, you know, actually forcing it to, yeah. to a defeat? How is that going to be working now? Well, I think both Michael and Meg laid out in, 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 in great detail some of the issues. And if I were the leader of uh, the House, I, I wouldn't start now discussing with them. I would have been doing so for the last 12 months, trying to measure how strongly people feel where there is room for, uh, for compromise. And Michael started talking about the timetable, and he was right to talk about the timetable because the, the great we weapon in Parliament is time. The government should not force the timetable. If the House of Lords needs more time in committee or report stage, my view is they should, they should have it. Um, uh, nobody should be able to complain we haven't had enough time to discuss such and such uh, an, an issue. We've already... Uh, we're already going to have two days, most unusually, two days in second reading, um, which will mean 150 plus uh, 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 speakers. So to give time um, is, uh, is, is an important one and make that very clear in their discussions uh, with the opposition. Um, I think that the, the purpose of these uh, discussions is obviously to lay out what the basic policy is of government and of uh, various opponents and also to see whether there is room for an internal negotiation within the House of Lords. Look, we can give you something a little more on the fundamental rights, but I'm afraid we're going to need, um, you know, there's nothing we can do at devolution now. For instance, I have no idea whether these are the right things uh, or, or, or not. To try and gauge realistically what can be achieved in the House of Lords in terms of change, which isn't going to completely upset the apple cart uh, if it goes back to the um, House of Lords. The, the one area where I very much agree with um, Meg is on the whole question of the so-called Henry VIII clauses, these new powers on statutory uh, instrument, instruments. And it's, it's a problem for the government. It's also a problem for those who want to try and change the system. There could be several thousand uh, of these orders coming through. No part of the purpose 
of, uh, of, of the Lords is to completely gum up the legislative uh, uh, process. So we may need to try and find a way either through um, sifting in the various committees or, or coming up with slightly new uh, ways of dealing with very, very important and crucial areas. And, and I think it would, it would be useful for the government to indicate that they were open to discussions on that sort of area. Okay. I just wanted to come back to the timetable. So, Michael, you, you had a timetable that ended up you know, with the government getting royal assent by the summer, and that means that sort of ping-pong doesn't go on forever. But the government's got this two-year session, so it's sort of lost sort of some of its usual mechanisms for forcing agreement. Um, so I just wondered, you know, is there a risk this thing goes on and actually drags on into, into the autumn? And what does that then mean for all the secondary legislation that would have to come through under it? Do you think, is your timetable optimistic or realistic or...? Yeah. Only time will tell, they say. <laughs> Uh, I, th I, think it's, I think it's a reasonable expectation, but um, as, um, as uh, Meg said, um, any prediction is dangerous at this, at this stage, and you could, there could be accidents along the route. But that, that would be my guess at the moment as to what the government would, yeah. would aim for, and I think there is a reasonable chance of that happening. But it could be, it, it, it could be delayed. Jill, you, yeah. you, you, you mentioned the two-year uh, session. Mm. But I wouldn't get too much comfort out of that. The government can, of course, close a session down whenever it wants. So if it really got into tr trouble in this unpredictable space, it, it could still create a, a new session, pass the bill for the second time in the House of Commons. The House of Lords doesn't even need to voice an opinion for the Parliament Act to apply. I'm not suggesting for one <laughs> moment that this is the right sort of bill uh, to be applied by the Parliament Act. It is the bluntest of all parliamentary blunt instruments. But I don't think we should get carried away just because of the two-year session that there aren't uh, alternatives. A lot of approving nods in the audience then from some of our constitutional experts. So I'm going to go to questions now. Um, but also I know we have a lot of distinguished people who are likely to be players yes. in the House of Lords in the audience. So don't feel obliged to ask a question. If any of you would like to actually give us a perspective on how you might play it, looking potentially at representatives of other political parties or whatever, you can start. Uh, yeah. Paul Tyler, Lord Tyler, M Marcus, there. Just a quick view from the Lib Dems, and I might just call on Lord Whitty, give us a view from Labour, since we've been saying they are the crucial players. Yes. I was invited to try and find a rebel amongst the Liberal Democrats. <laughs> it might be me. Um, <laughs> it would not for the first time. <laughs> not for the first time. Just a, a few extras to throw into the, to the pool. First, um, we have had a dress rehearsal with the sanctions and anti-money laundering bill, when I think it was extremely significant that very prominent legal crossbenchers led the attack, which I think is extremely significant. I think that will happen again. Huge majorities against the, the government. Um, second, I don't think the government is going to be able to say, oh, this is none of your business, which is sometimes what the leader of the House tends to say to us. Oh, you can't amend. This is too important. Leave it to the elected House. Because the government itself is asking us to do certain things in terms of amendments, and Conservative backbenchers have been very much in support of that particular position. Thirdly, as Meg has already said, the Constitution and Delegated uh, Powers Committee, which latter I sit on, are going to have an extremely important role when it comes to the whole issue of secondary legislation. 
which again has been touched on, the power grab thing, which is very important. And I'm very interested to hear Lord Strathclyde say that he doesn't think that the present arrangements for secretary legislation are very effective. The, the, I think there are 12 pages in Schedule 12, which has come from the Commons, which is a complete mess. I mean, it doesn't refer to the role of the Lords in terms of scrutiny at all, so that'll be fun. Um, the Select Committee on Conventions in 2006, on which I served, uh, said very firmly nothing about a minority government. We couldn't agree on what we should do with a minority government that didn't have a clear majority in the House of Commons, didn't really have a mandate in the House of Commons. And of course, at that stage, Lord Strathclyde was uh, giving evidence as a member of the opposition. So it's well worth looking at his views when he was in opposition, <laughs> when he was extremely robust about the role of the House of Lords on these sort of issues, on constitutional issues. And finally, as he's just said, I think it is very fascinating that the government didn't really seem to understand the significance of the two-year session. Because unless they are prepared to do some extraordinary acrobatics, they can't use the Parliament Acts. Now, all these factors, I think, will give credence and comfort, particularly to crossbenchers in the House of Lords. And their role is going to be absolutely <laughs> crucial. Okay. It's a bit of a game past the parcel of who's crucial. Lord Whitty, would you just like to give us a very brief perspective from the Labour Party? Um, well, I'm uh, not prepared to give a perspective for the Labour Party. I have no authority to speak for the Labour Party. I, uh, I'm a humble backbencher and uh, a member of the same committee as, uh, as Lord Jay. Um, I think it, I can give my opinion. I think it, uh, it's certainly unlikely that the Labour Party would announce at the beginning that they're going to vote against the whole bill. Yeah. Um, what happens at the end depends to a large extent on how the government behave. Uh, because there will be very strong reservations about big chunks of the aspects of this bill across parties within the House of Lords. We've mentioned uh, a number of them, the Henry VIII, the devolution and so forth. Uh, and there are also issues, not just the Charter of Fundamental Rights, but other parts which the transposition of, of uh, directives will not fully transpose European law because the provisions are uh, either in the treaties or in preambles, which uh, British lawyers don't like transposing. Uh, and so there will be a number of issues on which there will be... Uh, quite substantial constitutional argument which by and large the Labour opposition will support, or those uh, of the majority <coughs> will support. Uh, not only am I not speaking for the Labour Party, I'm not speaking for any of those small groups to which uh, Michael referred, um, although they are all in touch with all of us. Um, so it might be very interesting. There is one other aspect which hasn't been mentioned, and that is the, uh, the way the House of Lords operates. It often is the voice of civic society uh, which hasn't been properly expressed uh, within the Commons. Uh, Tom Strathclyde will remember bitterly uh, the um, Public Bodies Bill uh, early in his reign uh, in 2010-11, uh, when umpteen quangos were mentioned as potentially being abolished and umpteen uh, NGOs and uh, a large number of industrial sectors uh, objected. We will get pressure from outside uh, for very specific reasons uh, to write in uh, some provisions on this bill. And I suspect backbenchers uh, and crossbenchers in particular will reflect that. I think at the end of the day, this will be a long process. Uh, and uh, hitherto, if I can say this, uh, the government have not behaved very, forth very positively in relation to <coughs> EU issues, in particular on dealing 
uh, with reports from EU select committees. They have just played an absolutely straight bat. They will have to be much more subtle uh, and much more constructive in order to get this through. Thank you. Those are two very helpful interventions. Let's now go slightly more conventionally to questions, but also comments as well. So, okay, let's start off down here. Uh, yes, good morning. It's Chris Morris from the BBC. Uh, Lord Jay, uh, I don't know if your points of contention were listed in order of importance or complexity, but I noted that you... you, you no, no, the orders in which they, they came, came into your head. head. Fair enough. <laughs> well, nevertheless, it struck me that you, you started off with devolution, and you obviously said it's an issue which needs to be resolved. You didn't really say anything about how you thought that debate might play out, and I wonder if you could say something about that and other members of the panel as well. Well, I think the, uh, the, the, the impression I have uh, is that the government wants to find some way in which... Wales and Scotland are going to be able, their parliaments are going to be able to give le le pass a legislative consent motion so that um, uh, there is agreement between Westminster and uh, uh, Cardiff and Edinburgh. Uh, exactly what form that is going to take is going to be for them to decide. I, I, I can't say exactly what form it's going to, going to take, but if you look at the measures which are going to be brought back, there are in fact only a comparatively few number, agriculture, fisheries for example, um, which really there is a case for Westminster having some overall uh, say, but there is also a very important uh, interest um, in, in the devolved administration. So I, th I think there will be an agreement reached, um, but exactly at what point it will be reached, I don't know. And I was frankly surprised that the government didn't attempt to resolve that in the Commons and let it hang over into the Lords. It does complicate the passage of the bill uh, in the Lords. And there's an additional yeah. political factor as well, of course, isn't there? That the government did promise report stage amendments and they didn't come. And I assume that the negotiations haven't you know, ended successfully yet. But by pushing it to the Lords, they've outraged the SNP because, of course, the SNP doesn't take seats in the Lords, and that creates political complication as well. It does. So, solving devolution, reach a settlement in the Lords? I mean, it's it's, it's an interesting argument that um, those who are most in favour of the United Kingdom remaining in the single market, the European single market, as soon as you bring powers back from Brussels to Westminster, they oppose a single market within the United Kingdom. This is an argument which we will um, hear much of over the course of the next uh, uh, few weeks. In the end, you need a practical system which is going to work um, within the United uh, Kingdom. Michael talked about fisheries and agriculture. I completely agree with that. You do really do want to preserve a single market in that. There may be other minor issues which is much easier to devolve. But there's a more central point. This legislation is not going to be set in stone. Once you're out of the EU, at every general election, political parties can say what they're going to do. You can, you can maximize devolution, you can reduce devolution, you can do anything you want. So this, this debate doesn't ultimately need to resolve every aspect of it um, over the course of, of the next few months. This is something that can change over time. As devolution has already changed, over the course of the last 20 years. There is no reason why that shouldn't continue in the next 20 years. And Meg, if we go ahead without legislative consent, we never get to a stage where the Scots and Welsh are prepared to agree, they introduce their continuity bills. I mean, what does that mean for the sort of future constitutional relationship between uh, the UK government and the devolved administrations? Well, 
unpredictable difficulty, which I think everybody is doing their best to avoid. I also saw that Lord Fuchs had suggested that if the legislative consent motion doesn't come, the House of Lords would be within its rights to block the bill on that basis. So the, the, the sort of constitutional reverberations around the system. So I think everybody wants it sorted out. Okay, let's go to some more questions. If anyone's in the overspill room, the innovation room wants to come in, you need to duck your head round. Um, so let's come forward. I'm going to take them in groups so we can get some more. Yeah. yeah I, 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 a question on... Um, tell us who you are. Uh, sorry, I beg Lord your pardon. Um, Robin Butler, Member of the House of Lords. Question on uh, statutory instruments and all that. The government made a concession in the Commons where <clears throat> it said that it would introduce a sifting committee to distinguish between those uh, statutory instruments that needed more substantial treatment and those that didn't. But oddly, this is to be only a House of Commons sifting committee. They may well concede one for the House of Lords, but isn't that absurd? that it should be a joint committee, because otherwise you may have a House of Commons committee that says one thing and then a House of Lords committee that says the other. And then my other question to Lord Strathclyde is that if there are some statutory instruments, as there will be, that require more substantial debate and amendment, uh, has he got any, uh, any favoured way of changing procedure so that that can be done? Okay, let's take this one on SI procedure, big issue. Meg, why can't the Commons and Lords sort of get their act together and sift jointly and do this as a sort of Well, thing? for tedious procedural happen? reasons, uh, joint committees are quite difficult to get off the ground. You have to have motions in both houses on the same basis and so on. Um, but I do agree that there's a problem with these procedures that only the House of Commons has been written into the sifting so far, and that's bound to be an issue in the Lords. It'd be interesting to hear Tom Strathclyde's view on this, because of course he did the review of the delegated <laughs> powers processes. I mean, initially I thought this looked like a rather cynical move by the government to cut the House of Lords out of the process, but the leader of the House of Lords gave evidence to the Constitution Committee saying it's absolutely their intention that the House of Lords should have an equal say. I think there is a question as to, this is about upgrading uh, instruments that would be under the negative procedure to the affirmative procedure, um, and there is a question with two committees, do you need both to, to recommend an upgrade, or is one enough? It does get a bit complicated. I think probably it needs to be one or the other, because otherwise, if the Commons Committee turns out to be government-controlled, the Lords Committee will have no power at all, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, it makes right to, to say that joint committees are, are complicated to set up, uh, and they also become very big, uh, um, you know, 20, 30 members, which is, which is far too much. But there may be a way of finding uh, a, 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 an informal joint committee by using subcommittees of the existing committees that would meet consecutively and decide these things um, uh, uh, together. And I think that sort of voluntary, cooperative approach uh, may well be right. I also agree with the point about, um, about sifting, um, that the House of Lords definitely needs to be part of, of, of that process in one way or another. Um, as far as the broader aspect of, of secondary legislation is, is concerned, there is going to be a hell of a lot of it. And, um, you know, I'm sure that half a dozen of us could get around a table and work out a different way of doing it. There's more than one way of skinning this particular uh, cat. Uh, but in the end, the government needs certainly these things are going to get through. The worst thing to do is to create a system which gums up the whole of the, uh, the process and we get nowhere. So... Um, 
some time ago when I did my review on secondary legislation, what I discovered in the House of Commons is that there is very, very little interest in secondary legislation, whereas in the House of Lords there is a great deal of interest and a great deal of expertise. Marrying those two together during the course of the next few weeks I think will be an important role for the leader of the House of Lords to take uh, and her colleagues on the front bench. Okay, let's have, uh, I'm going to get questions in groups, so let's go back there. Maddie, if you could do that, and if Marcus, if you can come here, just in front of you. Marcus, there, yeah. Okay, uh, yes, uh, we're going to take a group of three, yes. Uh, Corbyn, oh, sorry, sorry um, I was going to Ruth, but anyway, but okay. yeah. Um, a, a question about um, something more broad than secondary legislation. To what extent do the panel feel that there'll be movement in the Lords on the meaning of a real vote on any final deal, either in terms of um, voting for a deal and if you're voting against the deal, we don't leave without any deal, or giving the public a vote on the final deal. I'm not calling it a second referendum, but a second vote. Okay, and then Ruth. <coughs> Thanks. Uh, Ruth Dixon, um, University of Oxford. I was interested what Lord Jay said about the would be moves to remove the exit date from um, the bill in, in the Lords. Um, if I'm right, that was added as a government amendment um, in the Commons, and I was wondering how much scope you think there is to reverse that. I mean, if it seems such a good idea, will they really stand by that amendment? Any more questions about the withdrawal agreement and dates and stuff yeah. like that? Yes, just, yeah. <coughs> Robert, microphone. Robert Morton, I'm a former member of the, the European Parliament, and I do actually disagree with the Conservative member with some of the introduction. Um, but it's following the previous question there, um, in terms of the influence on the bill that the terms are not agreed, um, the rather vagueness as to what the possible transition period afterwards. I would find it very difficult debating this until I really know what's actually going to happen, particularly on the internal market, where my own view is this was a fundamental area for British government to go ahead in the 80s and 90s. And it seems to me remarkable if we were to step back from that. Okay, let's, let's do this. So how is the laws going to sort of treat the things? We're now promised separate legislation on withdrawal, we've had this old dance around whether we put in a date, or we put in a date, then we accept the Letwin Amendment, which says the date can be changed, but there's going to be separate legislation, so couldn't the date have always been changed? So actually, how will these issues issues play out? Lord Jay, you've been... Well, I think this is, as I said, this is going to be one of the issues which will be discussed uh, in the Lords. Um, I, I don't know, uh, you're, you're right, if it goes back to the Commons, then the Commons can always, of course, decide to stick, as it, um, uh, stick with it as it, as it as it is now. Uh, that is not going to pre prevent there being a discussion of this issue in the Lords, and I think there, I think there will be. But I, I, I mean, the Lords is, of course, Tom Strathclyde is right, that the Lords is not going to want to send back something on a wing. But if the Lords really feels and that there is a majority for an amendment, which it thinks is the right kind of amendment, it will send that back to the Commons, even though it thinks that the Commons uh, may well um, uh, uh, stick with its original view. So that's on the, on the last point that was, um, that was, I think it's a really important point. Actually. I think uh, w we have focused very much on the passage of the, of the withdrawal bill through the, through the, 
the Lords, but at the same time, there are going to be intense negotiations between now and, uh, and, and Easter on what the transition period will consist of, and which is rather unknown at the moment, and then there will be very intense negotiations between um, Easter and, I guess, October and on what the final uh, settlement is going to be like. Um, uh, and that's going to be get carrying on in parallel with the process in the, in, in the, the Commons and ha in the Lords. How these two um, are going to interrelate is quite, at the moment, I think quite difficult to, uh, quite difficult to, to say. I, I just say on the final deal, uh, if I were asked to guess, well, what, what sort of final deal do I think? I would still guess, I would still guess on our leaving the single market and leaving the customs union. But I'm conscious that there is quite a, a, a kind of gathering of views that it is possible to stay in the cu customs union, which would be hugely important for Ireland and also hugely important for the supply chain in areas like the automotive sector, and leave the single market. And I, I wouldn't rule that out as a, uh, as a, final, as a final stage. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Mick? Yeah, I, I think there's some tremendous mischief around all this. It's phenomenally complicated and unpredictable. I mean, in some respects, this bill is enormously important, or potentially enormously important, but the real political show, I think, has now moved to the bill which will come in the autumn, the, the next withdrawal bill, which will be about agreeing the deal. Um, because, you know, that's, that's a commitment now. Um, this bill is quite ill-suited to transition, I think. I mean, it's, it's all about giving the government the ability to change um, EU law by through all these delegated powers and so on. But if the transition deal has us um, being subject to exactly the same rules as we're currently subject to, there's not going to be much opportunity to make those changes. Um, so I think on the, on the final, on the withdrawal, the, the second withdrawal bill, there are big, big questions because I don't think anybody is anticipating that the final deal, by the time that meaningful vote happens, is going to be clear. The transition may be clear, but the post-transition deal will not be clear. So th there's really big politics, I think, around the voting on that one, but that's out with this bill. Um, on the second referendum point, which Nicholas didn't mm. want to call a second <laughs> referendum. I think that is an interesting point because, I mean, I, as I say in the, the, the blog post, which was a longer version of my mm. remarks, the Lords, I think, will try and stick very hard to procedural topics, which is what it's mm. best at. But this is a very procedural bill. Mm. And one of the procedural things that you could argue, you could argue that a second referendum is a procedural topic and that this is about sort of proper scrutiny and consultation and all the rest of it. Um, Labour um, abstained on the uh, second referendum amendment in the Commons. So again, it comes back to what if Labour shifts, what if the public, the public mood shifts on that. I think there were also some other very interesting procedural proposals in the Commons, which could the House of Lords could have quite a lot of fun with. So at report <laughs> stage, there were amendments from Labour backbenchers calling for environmental impact mm. assessments of the environment, what will happen on, on the environmental policy um, side, and there was an amendment suggesting that there should be an independently validated economic <laughs> assessment of what will happen if we come out of the customs union mm. and single market. Now, those are procedural mm. proposals, and it's very hard to argue with suggestions that Parliament should be in full um, possession of the facts when it votes on that 
next withdrawal bill. And if some of those go in, I think that could cause quite a lot of mischief too. So yours is fine, scope for lots of mischief. Will the government be tempted to argue that actually these issues will be dealt with in the second piece of legislation and therefore the Lords ought to sort of hold its fire a bit until it sees them all? possibly interesting, as Meg has just said, piece of yes. legislation that's coming forward in the autumn. Um, I, I, I think so, and I think they'd be right to do so. I mean, this bill that we've got before is a very important uh, piece of legislation, but it might be worth just, just remembering what its main purpose is, which is to repeal the 1972 European Communities mm. Act and put that body of law into UK law from where it can be managed and so on. This bill is not a good way of debating what the future relationship with the EU should be, uh, nor to um, uh, tie the government's hands, uh, if, if you want, uh, in its uh, negotiating stance with the Commission over the course of the, of the next few months. That will come, but that will come after this immediate process has taken place. So I, I, I think that at the second reading, the government should try and remind everybody what this bill is for, what it's trying uh, to, to do, which is why I said right at the very mm. beginning that the danger for the House of Lords is to get into too many of these very detailed uh, debates about the long term and for that to be portrayed as backsliding on Brexit itself, which is not where I think the House of Lords wants to be. So would you be tempted to resist any amendments that Meg's just mentioned about impact assessments. It's always been quite a big battleground with the yes, government's big because I, I, I would like see them as, as spoiling tactics, ploys, very good wheezes, which the House of Lords is, is good at and, 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 and great fun, but not really part of the key purpose of the leg legislation. Okay, let's have some more questions. Um, got one down here. Maddie, could you go to the lady there? Thank you. Peter Abman from the Whitehall and Industry Group. Can I come back on Lord Jay's point about the interactions between the bill and uh, negotiations going on in Brussels? Uh, and let's say, as often happens, whenever big things are coming to European councils, it takes at least two European councils to agree something. So let's say by the summer the negotiations are in real trouble. Mm. We haven't got any idea what the transition period or implementation period is going to be, uh, never mind what the long-term mm. process is going to be. What's that going to do for the uh, atmosphere in the debate on the Lords? Okay, and yes. Uh, Claire Smith from the RSPB, which is part of the Green UK Coalition of Environmental NGOs, working for um, a good impact on the environment from Brexit. Something we're particularly concerned about is what's going to happen to the principles which underpin a lot of our environmental legislation, mm. things like the polluted pays mm. principle, things like the precautionary principle. Lord Whitty um, made the point in his, in his um, mm. speech earlier that these are things that don't tend to fit neatly into the British legal system and the British way of doing things. What suggestions does the panel have for how we can look at bringing these key legal aspects of European law over to English law if the transposition doesn't fit neatly into the British system? Okay, so who'd like to pick up this point about the laws of five, about Peter's point about sort of, you know, what's going to happen if this bill is proceeding but the negotiations aren't proceeding? In well, well I'd I like to pray and aid one of Michael mm. Jay's uh, words. It's all very unpredictable, <laughs> and, 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 and nobody really knows. Um, look, one of the great words in dealing with um, European legislation is brinksmanship. The, we, we know time and time again that these decisions 
are finally made in the last uh, few hours, the whole principle of, of stopping the clock. The, the, the short debate we had a moment ago about the end time, and you can argue it, uh, you can argue it both ways, but on the whole, it's, I think it's better to have an end time than not to have um, uh, an end time. So I fully expect these discussions to continue right through this, uh, this process until the Commission and the individual member states decide that the time is now right to have an agreement, whatever it is, and, uh, and, and, and that is done. So I'm not too worried about that reflecting in some negative way in the House of Lords, but unpredictability and uncertainty it seems to be the key mode, key word of the, of the, of the day, uh, and I think that will continue during that process. And Michael, what about this point, um, point Claire's made about picking up some of these concerns? Lord Whitty mentioned civic society groups who you know, feel they're losing quite a lot of government structures that we've had through the EU. The sort of environmental governance gap's been a big concern. The fact that you know, the bill doesn't reflect the principles that um, whatever. You know, House Lords going to be uh, going to be very much on their side in trying to well, the, the, add those the, 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 As I understand it, this is really a question about what happens after uh, mm. after Brexit when we have when we're having to deal with a lot of really yeah. difficult issues uh, in a different way from which we have up to now. And I think myself that one of the implications of of, of Brexit, which hasn't really been, I th Tom will correct me, mm. I'm, I'm wrong about this, uh, the, the, the effect particularly on the environment. Um, is going to be huge for British ministers. I mean, British ministers are going to have to decide what is the balance between saving the environment or protecting the environment and having cheap food. Now, in the past, what they said is, uh, you know, that's a decision for Brussels and we're going to fight our corner and we've got 80% of what we wanted and we're not going to get back 20%. But in future, the Ministry of Environment and the Ministry of Agriculture, as they're called, are going to have to make these decisions themselves. And they're going to be very, very difficult to make. And I'm not sure that that point has yet really sunk in to ministerial uh, consciousness of just how difficult some of these things are going to be outside the European uh, uh, Union. I think the one person who has actually in a way is Michael Gove and I think that some of the things he has said about the environment recently show that he is thinking about uh, the longer term and how it's going to be necessary to make some of these judgments but I think there are some really difficult issues um, to come there particularly, particularly on the environment and I may say so particularly on birds. <laughs> Playing to the audience there. Um, <laughs> final questions. We're about to have to wind up, so I'm just going to take two questions there. Uh, yep, and then back there, and then ask uh, panelists to wrap as well. Nat. Uh, Patrick Milner, a clerk in the in the Lords. Just um, a question for Meg, really. I think you used the phrase um, conventions of deference and, and members understanding their place in the system. I just wanted to push back slightly on that. Just ask whether you think that that's actually the case. We've seen whenever the EU issue comes up at questions, debates, backbench, business, whatever, the procedures of the House are, are, are sort of threatened and, and they're pushed, really. And there can be the opportunity for mischief, and we've, mentioned, we've heard things like, we're going to have fun with that, see how the government behave. Given that we don't have programme motions, we don't have guillotines, amendments can be degrouped. There's enormous uh, opportunity for members to have fun on this bill. And do you think that they will? Do you think they'll push it? Okay. And just a, a yeah. one final comment, just Lord Strathclyde. Do you think that there's uh, members in the House will be empowered to uh, take uh, the bill apart on secondary legislation, given that the response to the review that you chaired said that the government will be prepared to legislate and act if the primacy of the Commons was further threatened? Okay, that's a good final question. And yeah, final question. 
I'm Liam Lawrence-Smith, Clerk of Legislation in the House of Commons. I just wanted to say thank you for a really fascinating morning. Um, and perhaps, if I may, a slight plug for tonight. Dominic <laughs> Grieve is giving a lecture for the Constitution Society at UCL. And I think this is the kind of audience who might be interested to hear a backbencher's view of Brexit. Is that the, all right? Okay, so <laughs> thank you, Liam, for the uh, whatever rival events. No, um, all very interesting, and this is a debate that's running on multiple places. So I think this is really interesting. So what's going to feel like for the Lords? I mean, you know, are basically members going to be spending days and days and days doing this? Oh, is Patrick right that uh, that this is actually prime territory for the Lords to flex their muscles and um, whatever, rather than be deferential and stuff like that? Meg? Um, well, it's far be it from me to go head to head with somebody who's in the Lords every day and is a procedural specialist, so you could be right, but I suppose I was just chatting to David Beamish, who's at the back, who was chief uh, specialist for many, many years, and he seems to think that the Lords will um, show restraint, but I think I mean there are I think there are various um, uh, comparisons that are worth making here. One is, um, which is a tricky one, I think, about what individuals will do and what groups will do, because I think it's possible that some individuals might try guerrilla tactics. And the thing I was talking about with David Beamish mm. was um, whether they can succeed, because if groups like the Labour Party, mm. for example, don't want to play games, don't want to be seen to be playing games, to what extent can individuals be controlled? Um, and that's a little bit questionable in the Lords, but we both felt that there would be ways would be found. But I think there's also probably a difference between, as you say, playing games at question times and things and playing games on this bill, because I doubt that the media were watching the question times, but the media are going to be, some of the media are going to be watching this bill like hawks. And I don't think it's in the House of Lords' interests to have stories running in the media about how they're making trouble and playing silly games. And actually, the fact that the real politics might prove to be in the next mm. bill, I think, calms down tempers on this bill mm. somewhat. I mean, I think with the negotiations running alongside, um, if there wasn't a promise of a subsequent bill, there might be some desire to delay this one for as mm. long as possible because who knows where it's going. But actually, we know there's another one coming. Trouble can be made on that one if people feel the need to make trouble. And I think it might be sensible to let this one go relatively calmly and maintain the House of Lords' reputation for deference mm. and the rest. And there's another fight coming down the line. So, Michael, it's obviously a sort of corporate view of the House of Lords. I'm not quite sure how that emerges versus some individuals who've made it pretty clear that they regard stopping the Brexit bill as possibly more important than the uh, future of the House of Lords. I've heard one or two very distinguished uh, members saying that actually, you know, this is much more important to them than actually whether the House of Lords stays. Uh, so I was just wondering, what, what do you think it's going to feel like? How's it going to, going to work? Are you going to sit and be listening to Andrew Adonis for... 900 hours? In, <laughs> I have a very, I have a very high regard for Andrew Adonis. And, <laughs> a uh, distinguished former director <laughs> of the Institute for Government. But, uh, uh, well, I think I, I, I think I said earlier on that I think, the I think that the debate on this bill is going to be detailed, forensic and acrimonious. And I think that that's the best <laughs> description of what, what it's going to be like in the, uh, in, in the House of Lords. But I think the other point I'd like to make is that uh, time moves on extraordinarily mm. quickly. And what we were discussing three or six months ago is not what we're discussing mm. now. And what we're discussing now is not what we're going mm. to be discussing in three or six months' time. It's going to look and feel mm. very different when we get to 
May, June, July, when it's hot and everybody's a bit tired and we all get a bit fractious. Um, it's not going to feel like it does now. Final word, Lord uh, Well, uh, you've had two excellent answers to those uh, mm -hmm. questions, and I'm bound to say I think that the House of Lords will genuinely operate in a responsible and meaningful manner, not, not, not so much deferential, but as trying to deal with the business before it and, and come up with the best answer that it possibly can. I have toyed with the idea of what would the government need to do uh, for the House of Lords to behave really badly, <laughs> to use everything at its disposal. And the only scenario I can think of is if the referendum had resulted in a reverse result that the government had decided to go ahead with Brexit an irreversible change without the consent of the people, but with a majority in the House of Commons sending such a bill to the House of Lords. At that stage, I think all bets would be off. Fortunately, we are not in that position, and, and I think that the discussion and the debate that we will have in the House of Lords will be extremely interesting. Okay. Thank you all very much. That was incredibly informative and useful. Thank you, uh, members of the audience, for your engagement and your contributions. So could I just ask you to thank the panellists?